Welcome to the Uppercase Podcast, where we talk to our nation's best teachers. Brought to you by Uppercase, a collaborative mobile app for teachers to get answers from experts. Thanks for being on the Uppercase Podcast, Sergio. We're so delighted you're here. Um, I actually would just like to kick us off by having you introduce yourself and hearing a bit about your current teaching role as well. My name is Sergio Diaba. I'm a fourth grade teacher at RM Miano Elementary. And I can't think of the questions. <laughs> uh, I'm so sick have, right now. <laughs> how long have you been teaching, Sergio? <clears throat> this is my 23rd year. Wow. That's amazing. Amazing. So I actually want to start from the very beginning. I would love to hear about growing up and just really what inspired you to become an educator when you sort of realized that was your passion? You know, that was actually an accident. Uh, I did not want to be a teacher when I was in college. It was by chance. My brother was a teacher and he convinced me to take a test to become a substitute teacher while I was in college studying business and politics. I wanted to be a politician. And I ended up really enjoying being in the classroom with the kids. I, I connected with them in a special way. And it just made me think to myself, you know what? This might be something better for me to do with my life, something that could make a bigger difference. And so, you know, that that's, that's, that's why I became a teacher. It was mostly by chance, mostly an accident, but I'm so happy that I, that I decided to go this route. And you obviously yeah. found something you love. So <laughs> that's <amazing>. yes. <laughs> so tell me about your experience. I know you teach in a rural community in California. Um, and I was curious sort of what perspective this has shaped for you as an educator uh, teaching in a rural rural community. Well, th this is the reason why I teach her. I actually grew up about 15 minutes from where I teach. Also in a rural area. Both of my parents were farm workers, so I have a, a deep connection to the students that I serve. A lot of their parents are also farm workers. And so I understand these students in a way that is, is special. It's very unique because they see me as somebody that, you know what, they he came from where we come from. And still, with hard work and dedication, you are able to achieve whatever goal you set for yourself. And so the, this is the reason why I teach at the school that I teach. You know, it might have slightly more challenging situations, but I think I make a bigger impact by being with these kids that see me as an example of the possible. And, and that's powerful. That's powerful because I, I remember as a kid still learning the language. You know, I didn't have anybody uh, who looked like me mm. that could set that example of the possible. And and that's what I want to do. I want you to show these kids that, you know what, all of you are capable of greatness. Look at me. And so one of the things that I do just to make this connection a little bit more real is in my classroom, I have a picture of the house that I grew up in. Now, the house that I grew up in is very similar to what many of my students are living in. In fact, it's probably not as nice as what some of them are living in, but you know, it's this tiny 500 square foot shack 
you could tell that the roof was not right. It was every winter it would leak. Uh, but around that picture is different recognitions, different awards that I have won because of how dedicated I am to my profession. I want them to see that with the right dedication, whatever you choose to do with your life, you can make an impact. Doesn't matter where you come from. What matters is where you want to go. Something that my mom always used to tell me. Mm, I love that. It really is. It's so much about the intention and energy behind what you're doing and what you're bringing versus anything else, right? It just, it, it so outmatches anything. I believe that. I love that. I want to dig into specifically on your work in STEM and social studies programs, because I know that you specifically have developed innovative programs in STEM and social studies for uh, rural communities. So I was really curious at a high level, like what do you see as the unique needs of rural communities, specifically in the STEM and social studies fields? One of the things that I think all teachers should do is find what they have the most passion for. You know, when you have passion for what you're teaching, the lessons come out in a different way. And so the reason why I focus on STEM and social studies is because of the innate passion that I have for those two topics. But, you know, when, when I first started focusing on STEM, that was 23 years ago. In my district, that wasn't something that was seen as, you know, the next thing to, to focus on. But I had such a passion for it, and I felt that it could do something good for our students, that everything else revolves around those two topics, social studies and STEM. <clears throat> right now, my focus in STEM is centered on the fact that so many jobs are going to be available to my kids, to my students. Mm -hmm. My goal as their, as their teacher, even though I teach fourth grade, my goal is to be able to get them to grow up, live a life that makes them happy, something that has a, a job that will be able to fulfill their needs and just be productive members of society. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the focus I see in that. In terms of social studies, that's also related to civics. That's related to how we live our lives, how we see ourselves, and the impact that we can do, we can make to, to our world. And so that's, I think that's why I had such a strong connection to, to social studies, mm. is because I have always been taught, you know, you, you live for others, you work for others. And, and that's such a strong element of social studies, you know, that civics element that you need to, to think about what others need to make your life better. And, and that's how I teach. I teach my students, number one, you know, think about what you want out of life. And it's not about becoming uh, a rich YouTuber or anything like that. It's about what's going to make you happy in life, because that's one of the things that my fourth graders talk about. Uh, I'm going to be a, a rich YouTuber. Uh, <laughs> but I want them to think, okay, how about if that doesn't work out? Let's think about not just becoming rich, what what can you do to make the world better? What can you do that is going to make you a happy person? For example, I actually did business in college a little bit, and though it made good money, I, I don't enjoy it as much as being around you guys. And so I kind of try to make that connection with them so they can see what I'm, I'm trying to talk about. But yeah, that, that's that's the the focus for STEM and social studies is related to how I want them to be able to grow up and be and be happy individuals. Mm. I want to dig into this this 
piece on civics too, because I know that a lot of your work with students does impact the community, right? And you actually have a strong focus of getting parents involved and community members. So talk to us a little bit about that. Like, how do you sort of see the community as part of um, your day-to-day teaching, especially in something like, you know, civics? You know, from the beginning of my career, the, one of the strongest elements was to bring the community into the classroom. My school, when I first got there, every week in the windows uh, either would get broken or the walls would get tagged. And when I asked my students, you know, what can I do to make this a better place for you? And they had a bunch of different ideas, but one that resonated was the creation of a garden program. Mm. Now... The reason being, such an agricultural center, uh, I could really connect the parents to to the school. Now, when you are able to empower the community, when you are able to bring them in and show them that they are part of the learning community, it makes all the difference in the world. And, and that's why it's so important to create these opportunities for parents, for businesses. Businesses donate a lot of uh, supplies, money to to the programs, uh, by bringing them in, you are able to achieve so much more. If it was just me trying to do this on my own, there's no way I would have been able to do anything that we did together. And that's that's the key. That's the key to achieving big goals. Big goals are done by a lot of people, not just by one. Mm. And so it's crucial to get everybody involved if you want to accomplish something big. Now, if you ever went to my school, there are 16 gardens, a baseball field, uh, a stage, a veterans memorial stage. If you think about it, and then there's a Patriot Plaza. That's, what is it, 40 feet by 80 feet. It's wow. concrete. It's it's a lot of work that would have been impossible if I didn't have the support of the community. If you want to accomplish great things, you have to involve everybody and let them know that this is not about one person. It's about what can we do to make this better for your kids? What can we do to make this better for our town? When you do that, great things happen. Mm. And I would think, too, I mean, you talk about what, 16 gardens, did you say? And an orchard, I believe I read. Um, yes. <laughs> insane. So amazing. I'm curious how you see projects like this, like these real life projects actually lead students to become engaged with topics like science, agriculture, you know, economics, math, engineering, the list could go on and on. At the center of everything that I do, there's two things that I always have in mind, relevance and engagement. Mm. How can I make whatever I'm doing relevant to the people that I'm teaching? And how can it become engaging? How can it be so exciting, so interesting to them that they can't help but learn? And so being that we are an ag community, the gardens were perfect. Because now I have parents that are experts at, at you know growing plants, being able to come in and they're the experts. They're able to say, you know what? I actually know a lot about this. I could teach, you know, I could teach you a little bit about this. So these parents that were just like my parents, my parents went to third grade and sixth grade. And so they always felt that they could not contribute. They could not be part of the learning community. 
that's the same problem that we have in our school. You know, but when they become the experts, it, it's so much different. So for me, being that we're ag, that's what I did. But any community could figure out, okay, what are we known for? What 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 is our community comprised of? And bring that element into their into their program. And and that makes such a difference because uh that's what happened with the garden program. Be because of the kids and the parents being so interested in agriculture. We don't have the issues of being tagged every week anymore. Mm. You know, this school belongs to them. They have, uh, they are now, they now own the, the campus. They own the learning. And so being able to empower them this way, it just makes such a difference. You know, knowing that they actually could contribute. At the end of the day, all parents want to be able to help their kids become something better. You know, when we immigrated to this country, it was about the kids being able to get an education and do something good with their lives. That's how we came here. And, you know, with hard work, that's what we were able to do. My, my sister's a federal judge, my brother's a civil engineer, and my other brother's a teacher. So we all were able to go to college, do something great with our lives. And we're just trying to, you know, we're, I'm trying to get that for, for the kids and the parents to see that too. And so these are, you know, these are the types of experiences the opportunities that you know parents are able to come in and we can have these discussions in an informal fashion instead of being at a teacher conference teacher parent conference where everything's formal they're comfortable here and it's like good old friends just discussing life discussing the future of their children that's what these type of opportunities do these community building opportunities they're powerful mm. they're powerful that's that's the the reason why in the beginning for my first year of teaching, I focused on that, bringing the community into the campus. I love that. So for new newer teachers listening, I mean, the tactical strategy of family engagement is really challenging for so many new teachers. I mean, I'm curious what you would say to new teachers in terms of that <clears throat> tactical piece of building trust with families. I mean, is it really about sort of bringing them into events or what What have you seen from like the top of the school year to really establish that trust from day one? And, and you know, that, that is very true. Uh, the first step was trying to get the administration to, to see the good, the positive and, and bringing the community in at times it, it, there's so many different rules, so many different laws that you have to worry about mm -hmm. that it makes it a challenge, but I would start with small things. And, and, and this is the other issue. Like I said, there's a lot of new rules just in my district this year. There's different rules that uh, are going to make me have to modify my approach. Mm -hmm. And so I understand that that's a challenge. But you could always start with small things, small little projects. You know, I, I did a uh, I do a Mother's Day rose propagation project every year. So what the kids do is they grow rose from a cutting in one of the gardens that I have. It's called the Rose Rose Garden. And so it has a, a collection of heirloom roses that are legal to propagate through cuttings. And then the kids write an essay and the mothers come in. The kids sing a song to them. They read their essay and they give them this rose. I mean, this alone makes such a, I mean, you see all these mothers crying. They, they appreciate this opportunity for for their kids to uh, share something. It's academic, but it's a it's it's a show of love. But it's on campus. Doing these type of activities on campus 
opens up this possibility. And so it doesn't have to be something big. I have, you know, a big project, my astronomy night, where I would have 250 people wow. come in to look through a couple telescopes. And so th these are the kinds of things that you could do once you get to that point. But I'm not going to say it's easy. It's not easy. It it's a challenge. And yeah, the first step is to, of course, try to get your administrators uh, support. If you could do that, you know, anything's possible. Mm. So and, and I'm sure on the flip side of this, too, like beyond just family trust, you then establish trust with your students because they see you actually caring about their families as well. And, and that's true. That's very true. Uh, one of the comments that I hear from high school teachers, I have several, there's several high school teachers that have their students write about teachers that made an uh, impact on their lives. And it's very nice when I receive these emails at the end of the year or these essays. And it's, it's so powerful, the different things that these kids say that at times you don't realize how much of an impact it makes. And so a, a small situation where, you know, I've, I've consult somebody because their pet passed away or something that was small at the time uh, or I thought it wasn't all that big of a deal to them it was humongous and it just showed that I love I care about them I tell my students every day that I love them at the end of the day I tell them that have I told you uh, today that I love you and so I tell them have a good day be good I love you all and, and these are the kinds of small connections that with time it makes a difference in how they see you and makes a difference in how hard they work for you because they know that you're in it for them. Mm. And you're, you're right about that. It makes an incredible impact when they feel that you care about them. They care about you back. Like right now I, I called in sick because I'm really sick today. And my wife uh, just came in and she said, your kids are, you know, really worried about you. They, they said, you have to come back. I'll be back tomorrow. But, connections that uh, help you succeed in, in your profession, help you make it enjoyable to be a teacher because there's so many different challenges in this job. But when you are able to go, and I love going to work every day, so it's kind of hard for me to miss. Uh, but when you're able to to make those connections, it, it just, it makes it so much uh, more enjoyable to, to be able to do, uh, go to work every day. I mean, you also drive really incredible student outcomes, right? And I think obviously part of that result comes from this input of building deep connections with students. I want to spend a little bit of time talking through the way you measure individual student strengths, because I know that's a really big piece of driving instruction for you. Can you walk through some of the like brass tacks of how you do this well? Like, is it data informed? What does that look like? Everything that I do is based on their results on a, a diagnostic test. Mm. Every month I give them a diagnostic text, a test using several programs. <clears throat> From those results, I'll focus the lessons individually based on what they need, the fundamentals that they need to continue on to the next step. So basically I'm teaching, at this point I have only 27 kids, usually I have 33. Mm -hmm. I'm teaching basically 27 different lessons wow. based on the needs of each student. Now, the results, the results is that 
four times as many kids in my class go up a level than any other class. Wow. But it is a lot of work. Yeah. It is a lot of work, but I have got it to a point where I could be teaching four different individual lessons at my, it's, I have three tables by my desk. And so I'll have two kids here, one kid there, one kid here. And the rest of the kids are working on whatever they're working on. On my screen, I can see exactly what everybody's doing. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's in the red, I can see, okay, this kid did this. I could click on that question and see, okay, this is what this kid is doing. Let me call him and tell him to come over next. And so the kids know that I'm watching them throughout. I know exactly what they're working on. I know how much time they, they actually work, even when they go home and they do homework. I know all everything. And so I, I told them today, I'm like Santa, like see if you're bad or good. So, you know, make sure you're doing the work. <laughs> and, and and that's the thing. They, they're individualized to achieve that fundamental knowledge that is needed for each particular kid. That's a challenge. Hmm. But that's my passion. That's that's why I do this. And the success from, from my first year of teaching is evident. There's there's proof that it works. Mm -hmm. How do you keep track of this? Do you have a, do you use technology to keep track of every single student's progress, or how do you manage that? There's a, a program that I use called IXL. Mm -hmm. Just the letters IXL. That that it's a wonderful program. Uh, it keeps track of every single thing that kids do throughout the day. Wow. And the other thing you have to realize too, this is only a small part of my approach to teaching. Mm -hmm. I put so much more focus on individual growth than, than is typical. And so the, it goes once again with the, the idea of engagement. You could teach for five hours, give lectures for five hours, and they can learn nothing from those five hours. Mm. I could give this lesson for half an hour, give them half an hour to work on math, and they gain so much more. Because for that half hour, the quality of engagement is so much greater than when in the beginning of, the, of my career and I was lecturing for hours. It just, they're, they're asleep after 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And they might be looking and nodding. They get really good at that. But they're now really learning by individualizing the work and by also focusing on individual, you know, personal growth. It, it makes such a, a bigger uh, difference because when we are doing academic work, they are so much more engaged that that's quality time mm. and they're learning to be better people. So I spend hours, sometimes I'll, I'll just talk to them about life. And you'll be surprised how much of an impact that makes. That's one of the biggest things that the high school kids, when they write their their stories about me, they write, he treated us with respect. He he showed that he cared. He he told us about why he does what he does. He told us about life. You know, I teach nine and ten year olds, and they're <laughs> reflecting back to those years and thinking this way. So I mean, you don't realize just how much of an impact you can make with those type of discussions. One of the other things that I do, I, I do a quote of the, of the week. Mm -hmm. And so these quotes are quotes that I live by. Quotes about 
you know, being respectful, being uh, good people. And every day we do five minutes and we discuss what do you think this quote means to you? You know, for this, the same quote for, for the whole week. They internalize that. This becomes part of who they are. And, you know, I'm using all these different things that are not technically academic, mm -hmm. but it's about growing the individual. It's about the whole child. You know, there's only so much that they are going to be able to absorb in terms of uh, academic uh, lessons. And then everything else, you just you're just talking to yourself. And, and so that's one of the things that I would focus on is really try to get to know these kids see what they need, individualize their programs, which is, I know it's a, it's a challenge, but you don't have to work as long if, if you're focused on what they each need. Mm -hmm. IXL makes it, and maybe, I, you know, it sounds like I'm, I'm working for IXL, but IXL <laughs> makes it a lot more uh, possible because I have always done that, but it hasn't been, it's probably been maybe... Six years since I started working on Excel. And this is my 23rd year. So before that, it would just all be me keeping notes, which is a lot more challenging. Yeah. And you have to find the tools that work, right? Because there's just not enough time in the day. Like if you don't yes. have that leverage, it just, there's no chance to keep track of 10 students, let alone, you know, 30. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. I mean, you've stated before that your teaching philosophy as a whole is centered around developing the whole child. And really assisting learners to discover their own gifts. So I'm curious when you think about that, like how do you see this whole child focus really being critical to your students' learning and how it affects their, how they see their own role in their communities? One of the biggest obstacles is kids hearing that they aren't good at anything, mm. that they will never succeed. Uh, I know how that feels. I felt that from, from my own dad throughout my childhood. So from the beginning of the year, I find, what are you good at? Mm. I have many different experiences. That's the reason for the tournaments, the sports tournaments. That's the reason for the art competition. That's the reason for the math club, the science club, the ad club. What are you good at? My My... Statement to them every year in the beginning of the year is all of you have a gift. Some of you have found it already, and some of you will find it either this year or soon. And, and so whatever they tend to have some uh, success in, I make that into a big thing. Mm. You know, this year I have a lot of really talented artists. And so whenever they make something, I make a big deal about it. That builds them up. Mm -hmm. You know, from there, they work on everything else, too, because this guy actually cares about me. He, he thinks I'm good at something. Mm. These type of statements, they mean so much to a kid. And the same thing when you go the opposite way. You might think you might be saying something that's innocuous, something that's very uh, not a big deal. To, but to them, it's a humongous deal. Uh, so you have to be careful what you say in that sense, too. Because if you do something that you might think you're being sarcastic and it's, it's fun to, to you, they don't see it that way. So I'm very careful. I'm not sarcastic with my kids. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that I avoid because of that. Because I understand that at this age, uh, 
you know, elementary age, they take it very personal. And so I've seen uh, kids come into my class and I'll make a statement and a kid would say, are you being sarcastic? And I'm like, what do you mean sarcastic? I, I'm, I don't use sarcasm with, with my students. And they said, well, my last year's teacher did this. Mm. And he was making fun of me. And I said, listen, I will never make fun of you, especially not in front of everybody else. Why would anybody do that to you? Uh, well, he was just trying to be fun. Well, see, they feel this. Mm -hmm. They feel this and it turns them off for the rest of the year. And so whenever they say something like that, I make sure to let them know, I'm not going to try to hurt you. This is this is not the way we're going to be in this class. In this class, we are a family. We love each other. We take care of each other. If anybody has ever made you feel that way, I'm sorry about that, but that's not the way we're going to be here. So those are the kinds of things that change the the perception of what this class is all about. And, and that's kind of, it, it goes along with the idea of a lot of my students don't have the strongest uh, family lives. Uh, a lot of parents work so hard mm -hmm. and I am so impressed at how hard they work because they have to go what we call over the hill. Uh, it's it's a, the bigger city and it takes them two, three hours every day of tra of traveling just to make sure that their kids have that that home. And so I tell the kids, you know, your parents are working so hard. Let's do your part also so that you could be successful like your parents have worked for you to be. And so there, there's so many different elements that you really have to look at in order to to make up a program that that is good for your your population. And so, I mean, this is my 23rd year, so it, it's taken me a while. But even now, I change it up every year mm -hmm. because it still depends on what the students are for that particular year, how they think, how what they lack. Uh, right now, with the uh, the students that I have, a big issue is the decline due to the pandemic. The the foundational skills that they typically would have are are not the same. And so I have to keep that in mind when I develop my program. So it completely has changed since the last year mm. because these kids were in kindergarten when they, you know, they were thrown into uh, Zoom classes. Yeah, that's... And so, yeah, you. Wow. And so you, you have to keep everything in mind. And at the same time, and this is, I, I wish I would have done this when I was a first year teacher. Don't kill yourself. <laughs> don't don't stress yourself out so much because I would leave at five in the morning, come home seven, eight, nine, trying to develop something that would work. And luckily I have a, a very understanding wife. Uh, but I think to myself, I don't do that now. Yeah. I, I, I might go in maybe six if I have something that I have to do, but most of the time my, my, my day starts at eight. I'm usually there at 750. Mm -hmm. My school day ends at 335. I leave at 335. Mm -hmm. And I try to leave everything behind. Why? Burnout. There are so many teachers that burn themselves out because they we want to do what's best for our kids. But before you could do that, you have to take care of yourself. Mm. And that's one of the things that I wish I was told in the beginning because... You know, after about 10 years, I, I was feeling burned out. 
And that's when I started thinking, okay, I think I've developed the infrastructure for what I want to do. I need to calm down a little bit. And it took me a while. It took me a while because it wasn't until about maybe four years ago that I started, you know, leaving on time. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's that's one of the other things that that's important for a first-year teacher or a beginning teacher. Try not to bring yourself out. Be Be careful about taking care of yourself first so then you can take care of the kids. And if it doesn't work out, the lesson doesn't work out, okay, figure it out. What what happened to that lesson? And redo it. And just just don't worry about it too much because that's another thing we do too much. We worry so much that we make it harder on ourselves. And so this is such a fun job when you let it be fun. And I know it's easier said than done, especially with people, admins, and other people telling you, you need to do this by this time. Once... You know, once you understand how it really works, you don't you don't worry about that anymore. It almost takes discipline, though, right? Like to actually train your mind to let go in some <laughs> ways, because I see so many first year teachers and I was one of them, right, who like, you know, you come home and you are thinking about everything that went wrong that day and trying to figure out how to fix it and trying to lesson plan and grade. And it's just totally a snowball, right? It's like, oh, yes, an avalanche. Like, how do you think about, I mean, if you can even remember back to your first five years, like really thinking about how you started to really, you know, achieve that discipline of setting boundaries and and letting go and, you know, really not hanging on to the lesson that went poorly. What did that look like for you? How did you develop that muscle? Well, I didn't, didn't do that in my first five years, <laughs> but uh, it, it would really bug me if I wasn't as successful as I, I wanted the students to be. And it was always my fault. You know, I would always blame myself. What did I do wrong? You can't blame the kids. You know, you're the teacher. You're, you're the one that should be able to have whatever you have and help, help them be successful. It wasn't until recently where I started thinking to myself, Okay, because of the pandemic, I I changed my program drastically. Last year's scores were still, were still, you know, four times as many kids still went up than any of the classes. Mm. And I wasn't, you know, overdoing it with these kids. In other words, it, you know, I, slowly but surely, I, I understood, and this probably happened maybe 10 years ago, that if I spend more time talking to the kids about life, talking to the kids about why things are important, that they start to think that these lessons are, are it's more of a focus thing. Mm -hmm. they, they tend to be more engaged. And when they're more engaged, I need less time and less structure, structure, if you would call that, uh, to, to achieve success. Mm. And, and so that's basically what it was. I figured out that, I don't need to be so hard on the lessons. I need to more develop a student that wants to be there and appreciates the lesson. Once you can achieve that, the engagement factor changes how successful you are based on the, on the time that you work. I use much less time on the lesson now, but still are, are, I'm still achieving uh, the same success and students aren't burned out because I'm I'm working them so hard. My in the beginning of my career, I worked them out so hard. Mm. 
Hmm. You know, we have to, this is where you're at. And I was, I'm always been, a, I have always been a numbers person. So this is where you're at at, at this test, uh, the state test. This is where we're supposed to get you to. Mm-hmm. I would figure out, okay, this is what you're lacking through assessment. This is what you know each individual student is lacking. So this is how I'm going to focus on them. I would give them homework. I don't give homework anymore. Uh, I would give them a, a lot of homework. I would give two, three math lessons, two, three language arts lessons, throwing a little bit of PE, a little bit of art, you know, 10 minutes of art, not 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 what, what it should be in elementary. Uh, and I, re, I, I did achieve the scores, but I don't think the kids enjoyed it as much as they enjoy it now. Today's classroom, my classroom today, you know, they still achieve those scores, but uh, we spend time meditating. Mm. You know, they come in after uh, a half hour of, of PE, and the PE is also very uh, structured, if you will. They they learn how to play the sport correctly. They learn the rules. They learn everything about particular sports. It's not just free play. Mm-hmm. And, and so even that is intertwined with life lessons. So we talk about strategy in life through sports. I mean, there, there's so much that is embedded about life skills in every single thing that I do. We come in, we meditate. In the beginning, kids hate it. They're like, we got to sit here and just do nothing. <laughs> but right now, you know, this, just this week, when, or, you know, when, when, when they meditate, you can see them really enjoying it. And when we're done, they're all relaxed. You know, the, the, so many issues that they have at home are forgotten for a bit. And, and we could get back to work. And the quality of the lesson, because of that also improves. I mean, these are the kind of kinds of things that can make your classroom so much more interesting for you too. Mm. But we're not trained that way as teachers. Yeah. We're trained, okay, we gotta give this lesson. Tomorrow we have to give this lesson. We have a pacing calendar. I don't do any of that. I don't do any of that. If the pacing calendar is going too fast, I don't follow it, but I'm tenured. I could do that. So don't do that if you're not tenured. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to get fired. Uh, but my scores prove that what I'm doing works. And that's at the end of the day, that's what you want. You want them to be successful, but you have to figure out what you need to do for those particular students. And, and that's something where, where we really don't do enough. You know, we we don't see... Uh, what is needed by each kid. We just say, okay, the majority, 80%, 70% are here. So we're going to teach this particular lesson as a whole class. What happens when you do that? Mm. You know, five, 10% are above that. So they're bored. 30% are below that. So they're lost. You're failing your class. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, that model, that system it doesn't work and we can't we can't see it we we just continue on and do what we were were told because you know at the end of the day we want to keep our jobs but you know talk you know speaking from a tenure teacher that's not the right approach Mm. not for at least not for the kids that i have and i've spoken to teachers throughout our country and i and i would say that 
for our country, that's not the right approach. Hmm. Let's talk about that for a second. Cause you know, I, I'm thinking, first of all, that all I can say about this conversation is I wish I had spoken to you when I was just starting teaching. Like it would have changed my game um, entirely. And and that's what I want to talk about. Like so much professional development and learning for teachers right now doesn't center around a lot of these ideas. So I'm curious for you, I know you've pursued a lot of incredible professional development opportunities. Can you talk about one or two of them that really help to shape this mindset that you have and help to develop some of these strategies? Uh, I would say the garden component. When my first year of teaching and a young lady said, you know why, why don't we build a garden? And I'm thinking to myself, all the reasons why that wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. And so I looked into it a little bit because I grew up in an ag home too. And I thought to myself, okay, I could see how this could work. But this is going to be expensive. This mm -hmm. is going to be a lot of extra work on my part because the district is not going to take care of this. Mm -hmm. Am I willing to make this commitment to create a garden that I'm going to have to take care of in the summers and, you know, all, everything that goes with it? And when I saw this young lady and I told her, well, who's going to take care of it? How are we going to pay for it? And she just looked at me and said, those are just details, Mr. Diablo. And I thought to myself, man, I guess those are just details. And <laughs> <laughs> she seemed so secure, so so strong about her her idea that I took it to the principal. And she said the same exact thing that I said. You know, mind you, I'm a first-year teacher. So who am I to, to start something big like this? And after six months, I got approval. Wow. I got the community to invest money. I got donations of a, of a fence. The fence was, I believe, $9,000 at the time. It was completely donated. The installation was donated. I got wood to make garden beds donated, which was about, I think it was $600 at the time, and we paid for a portion of it. Dirt was donated. Uh, and then the installation was done by myself and some parents and another teacher. But that made such a difference in, in you know, how they, they saw it. Mm. And so those are the kinds of things that, you know, you, you don't realize can make a, an impact uh, until, until way after. And so at the end of the year, uh, several teachers were actually kind of upset with me that I, that I asked for this program. Mm. And at that point, the test scores didn't come out until summer. So when the test scores came out and the first year teachers' scores were the highest in the grade, you know, that kind of changed everything about how how things were seen. And so from there, I actually got other teachers involved in the program and they actually said, you know what, maybe he has something. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, what what these type of projects can do is bring the community in. But more than that, it, it creates an engagement that alleviates behavior issues and makes people, students want to learn more. And, and there's just so much more to it than, than just the, being a garden. It, it's so much more powerful than that. And I'm sorry, I'm dying sick and I forgot the rest of the question. <laughs> no, it's so good. I mean, it's actually like hands-on professional development opportunity, right? Where you're not only doing that 
and learning yourself, but then you're bringing in teachers from your school, right? I mean, that's, it's like the most relevant hands-on learning, even for you all, which is really cool. Yeah. And in the beginning, my professional development was based on seeing the different garden programs that were around uh, the central California. Uh, and most of them were actually in, in the Bay Area. And so I visited uh, Alice Waters' uh, garden. Yeah. And, and I got a lot of ideas from there. Uh, and there was a couple of uh, other programs geared toward developing gardens and schools. And and that was basically the the professional development I did my first couple of years. It was all centered on how can I make this garden program something special? And from there, I was able to to get the community involved because it seemed like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> and so, and, and for the fo- more, most part, I, I had the theory, but I had never actually did anything like that being a first year teacher, but it, it worked out pretty well. I wanted to ask you too, I mean, in your own professional development, you have really pursued a lot of real world experiences. I mean, you've traveled quite a bit. You've gone to Colombia, South Africa. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about some of the opportunities you've pursued to travel as a fellow and sort of how those learnings have come back into your classroom? I began doing fellowships in 2020. So this is actually a professional development that I've done at the end of my career or currently in my career. So I've, I've been very fortunate. I've done a Grosvenor Fellowship to Antarctica. Wow. I did a KKC Fellowship to Japan, uh, Fulbright to Colombia, a Global Learning to Peru. Uh, so I, I've, I've actually traveled all seven continents, uh, 26 different countries, all with the idea that when you bring experiences back, when you bring knowledge back, when you see how different schools how different systems work everything you might not use exactly what they're doing but there might be little tidbits that you could incorporate into your own program and that's what i do Mm -hmm. now uh, some of those fellowships are research fellowships and see this is another way of seeing this is not just about the professional development but it's for me about being able to bring back these pictures these videos, these stories, and showing my students once again what is possible. That's powerful too. And, and people sometimes don't realize that just being able to have their teacher be in a, in a faraway place to, to kids that are like my kids, low-income, uh, disadvantaged students, it, it makes such a powerful impact to them. And so it's not just about the information that you're getting. And I got great information from every single one of those places. Uh, Japan system, I, I was amazed with their system. Uh, you know, I, I I borrowed some of the, the ideas uh, about how they bring different things to after-school programs uh, that we might not think of. You know, some of their schools are there on Saturdays too which I thought was interesting. I told my kids about that. How about if we do Saturday school? They didn't really go for that one. But I mean, there's so many different things that it's not necessarily something that you have to adopt, but there's tidbits. There's little thoughts 
that I bring back, but even more powerful for my students is being able to have that giant six foot by nine foot map with pins of every single place that I've been. And then across the way is that picture of the house that I grew up in and being able to say to themselves, maybe that could be me one day. Mm. You know, if he was able to do it and he tells me that I could do it, why can't I? And, and see, that's more than just the professional development. You'd be surprised how much these stories impact your students. So, you know, they sometimes don't say anything. I, I have an essay from a young lady that I thought she hated my guts, to be honest with you, because I was always on her case because I thought she she had so much so much potential but just seemed to not really care about anything. She gets to high school. She uh, gets accepted to UCLA. Mm -hmm. And she writes this, this five-page essay about me for her for college essays. And she sends me a copy. And I'm like in tears because, <laughs> number one, it was so beautiful. And number two, I thought she hated my guts. <laughs> but those, those are the kinds of things that you don't realize. You, they might not tell you anything that whole year, but everything you say, everything you do makes an impact on your students. And, and so that's how I see every time I come into that classroom, what am I doing to make these kids feel like they're going to be successful in this world? I remember being a kid learning the language. And I remember thinking that a lot of my teachers did not think I was going to do more than just be a field worker like my parents. I could feel it. I could see it. They didn't have to say it. I could just feel the feel it by their look. Mm -hmm. And so I, I understand how much impact that has. And so for several years, I was a little bit of a troublemaker. Because why not? I'm not going to do anything else with my life until I had some teachers that say, you know what? No, you're actually pretty smart. You could do something with your with your life if you work hard. You know, and and you don't know how much of an impact you have maybe until years later. And Mr. Thornburn, fourth grade teacher, you had such a great impact on me. I didn't tell you anything, though. And I know it was a little bit of a, of a pain, but because of him, I started to see myself differently. Mm. And, and those are the kinds of things that you don't know until much later, if they care to share with you. And so, yeah, just be careful about, you know, always showing love, always showing respect. And it, and it changes how successful you will be in your classroom. Mm, I love that too. I mean, it is true. You really can change what you think is possible for yourself, right? And like an impactful moment, looking up to a teacher or having someone really believe in you can be that, right? It can be the catalyst for that. Oh, yes. Huge. So I was chuckling to myself because in your introduction, you failed to mention that you have probably like, I don't even know, 40 awards, too many to list, let's say. But some of them include National Teachers Hall of Fame inductee. That was 2022, I believe. Um, you're an Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellow, Gilder Lehrman, National History Teacher of the Year. It really does go on and on. Can you talk to us a little bit about how some of these honors have allowed you the platform to shape education and influence the field? Because it's it's quite remarkable. And that's one of the, the things about awards. Mm -hmm. It's it's nice and all. But more than that, it's the opportunity to meet other people that have so many more ideas. For example, the Einstein Fellowship. 
that was uh, 11 months in Washington, D.C. And I got to meet a group of teachers that those are my people. Those, that I mean, people always call me a nerd, but it, it was so much fun to just talk to these people and think to myself, oh, my goodness, they, they are great educators. And the way they think is the same way that I think. And it's just they have all these ideas that, you know, I might have something that I've been wanting to do but didn't know how to get to the next point. And somebody else just says, well, this is what I would have done. I'm like, this is perfect. That's exactly what I needed to do. The beauty of these awards is that it takes you all over the place. Mm. You know, it, it allows you to, to, to meet other people that could help you continue to grow and to help you continue to be successful. And, and, and a lot of times they fund your programs. My programs are funded not by the district, but by awards, uh, by uh, donations. And whenever you win something, you know, the community sees that you've worked hard and they want to give back. And so that's that's one of the side positives of, of winning awards. Fellowships, I mean, I started doing fellowships in 2020. Mm because I was waiting for my kids to grow up, you know, my daughters to grow up enough so that I could leave and not feel bad and not leave my wife out in the lurch uh, with, with small children. And so in 2020, uh, we finally said, okay, I think the, you know, the girls are old enough. Uh, you know, you could go ahead and start doing different things. And that's when I started, that's why I started doing fellowships. But there, if you, if you don't have that issue, I've met so many incredible teachers through the nine, 10 fellowships that I've done in the past couple of years. And, and it, I mean, the teacher from Columbia, I still, I still speak with her, you know, we do what's up all, all the time. And she, you know, lets me know what she's doing with her STEM program that I helped develop. Wow. And so th those are the kinds of things that, that makes this so much more fun. You know, you you get to speak to all these different people with all these ideas. And this is the thing about teaching. If you are comfortable in sharing your knowledge and you're comfortable in accepting somebody else's knowledge, it's a lot easier to be successful. And, and so more than the accolades, more than the, you know, Mr. Diablo has won an award, but the kids do appreciate that. They, you know, they always tell me about that. Oh, I saw you in the news. I saw this. They they appreciate that too. But more than that is being able to meet so many different people that have made me a better teacher. And the, the same thing with fellowships. Take every opportunity for a fellowship uh, because they, they help you grow so much. Uh, and then, you know, if you get an award for, for it, that's great and all. But at the end of the day, it's really more about continuing to develop, continuing to grow. I'm 23 years in and I'm still changing my program every year. And it's in large part due to the fellowships, in large part due to the the people that I have met. You know, my two partners in Antarctica, uh, we still send messages to each other, joking around and, and talking about different things that we're doing. And if I have a, a question, I could send it out to whoever I think might be the specialist of that particular thing. And they'll email me right back or call me right back. And that's that's powerful. 
really that's powerful in teaching being able to to communicate with other people and being able to know that you know it's not just about the people in your city that you could go to when you win an award your name gets out there and your your reach is so much so much bigger my reach right now is it's worldwide mm. because i have teachers in in japan i have teachers in colombia and peru that we still talk and so that's that's the biggest thing about awards for me. It's not really about the recognition. It's about the connections that I make and the improvement to my program that I could achieve. Mm, I love that. Okay, last question, because I really could talk to you for another hour, but I know we have to wrap. Um, I ask everyone on the podcast this question. Um, it's quite broad, but you can answer it any way you want. Why do you teach? I teach to make a difference. I teach so that the kid that was like me at my age, at that age, sees somebody that believes in them, sees somebody that looks like them, and, and helps them see the potential of their of their future. You know, uh, all these uh, messages that that I get after they leave, it's all about that. It's all surrounding that idea. I was able to get to the next level because you continue to be in my mind. And I kept believing in myself because of what you would tell me in elementary. Mm. That's that's why I do this. You know, I, I could probably do other things. I could still probably run a business and, and make more money. But it's not as fun as this to me. And I don't think I, I would make a bigger impact doing anything else. You make an incredible impact. Every day that you're in that classroom, you are making an incredible impact. That's why I teach, to change to change the world. Mm. Thank you, Sergio, for this beautiful conversation. This was so terrific. Thanks for listening to the Uppercase Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Find us on the web at uppercaseteach.com and coming soon to an app store near you.